So we've been uh, working through this series, um, the, the Walk of Life, we're going to continue it over these next few weeks. We're looking really at the issues of how to live our lives day by day as believers in Jesus. Now, as soon as I say that, it sounds as if what I'm going to do is therefore speak to only a certain group of people, people who say that they're believers in Jesus. Uh, that's not quite true, is it? Because as we spend this time together, what I want to make sure that I'm doing is, uh, is speaking to all of us who are here this afternoon. I know that some of us are just thinking about uh, the ideas of the claims of the Bible. And so by looking on and thinking and considering what it might mean to be a follower of Jesus, we'll be able to understand more of what the Bible is telling us, more of what the presence of Jesus in the world shapes us into thinking and shapes us into living. And so I want to invite you um, to uh, partake in this next period of time where we consider these things. We are living in a remarkable uh, period of history in this particular country. It's remarkable that um, the influence of a Christian heritage, which after all has been part of this country for a thousand or so years, um, is probably on the greatest level of decline um, in all of its history. Now let me clarify that. I am not saying that... uh, this country has been um, never as, as, godly, as, as godless as it currently is. There has been many times over the past thousand years when people have not lived according to the pattern that Jesus laid out and the Bible preserves for us. What I am saying is that the, the general shape and the general influence and the, what is most impacting our society, is now uh, no longer a foundation of the ideas of the Bible. That's a remarkable shift that's taken place. In fact, probably in the last 30 to 40 years, it is changing at an exponential rate. I I want to encourage you, therefore, uh, into thinking that it is more important and there is greater opportunity for us to shape our claim to faith by the way we live now than possibly there ever has been. It is more important for us to consider and to think what does it mean to live as believers in Jesus in the world that we now inhabit. It's really easy for us to just assume patterns, if you like, traditions, ways of being from the past, and to never rethink. Uh, If you want a football analogy, um, some of you have just kind of clouded over that. (laughs) You know, there's some football teams that have just hung on to the, the old way of playing, and come what may, they've stuck with it, the old pattern of playing, and the game's changed. You know, the basic principles are the same. The laws of the game are the same. But it just needs to be played in a different way to be successful these days in the premiership. It's just it's a faster game. Um, you, can't, you can't tackle the way you used to tackle when I were a lad. You can't do all of those. It's just a different game. But all 
the rules are the same, aren't they? Isn't that interesting? In lots of ways, we could say that walking the Christian pathway is the same. In one sense, nothing has changed. And yet we need to think, we need to consider how to live, how to uh, shape our lives, how to be a pattern of living in the world that we now inhabit today. I guess we could say that over the past um, centuries, and, and I guess this is a confession on behalf of the church, the church has drifted into times where it's got mixed up and it's assumed power rather than being a light. And when we assume power, we become a, 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 a pattern of coercion and dominance and unhelpful impact on society. What we actually see is that the message of Jesus came and it never claimed those kinds of powers. It came and it said, live our lives in a way which is just going to be a light. In fact, as we turn to this particular reading, that's the first thing that we see. We remind ourselves that Jesus is with his disciples and this is really right at the very beginning of their time together. Uh, really early on in the ministry of Jesus. We know that he's called a group of disciples to be followers of him. He's establishing uh, the continuation. For those of you who aren't um, aware of the pattern of the Bible, the Bible's in two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament prepares for the coming of Jesus. Uh, And the Old Testament points to this moment in time. Jesus Uh, enters into the world, and he builds and shapes what we describe as a a new law or a new covenant, a new agreement, a new relationship with God in him, which is not separate from the past, but is built on the past. In other words, that everything that has gone before is not wiped away, it's built on. So when we talk about the Christian faith, We're talking about something which is built on the heritage of the Jewish faith up to the coming of Jesus. The Jewish faith was the foundation of the Christian faith. Christian faith isn't something new that came in. Jesus came along and he built on everything that had gone before. And he comes in and he establishes this group of 12 disciples. uh, And those 12 disciples, after his death, with the exception of one, Uh, who was replaced, they become influential in the ongoing spreading of the message of Jesus. Uh, And here we see him working with his disciples and spending some time with them, establishing a foundation. Now, this is a foundation in two ways. It's a foundation for the rest of his time with them, and it's also what we're looking at this afternoon, is a foundation for a, a significant part of teaching where he gives them all sorts of instructions on how to live. We see that both of those things are working. It's almost his uh, manifesto of how to live according to his newly established way of being. Look at what we see here. Jesus says to these disciples and others who are listening on, you're the salt of the earth. 
But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So there are two metaphors that are going on here, two ways of describing how to live. You know, we, we, this is what it's all about, how to walk the walk of life. And Jesus turns to us today and he says, there's two ways, two foundations on which to live. You are to be salt and you are to be light. Those two things, those metaphors, ways of describing. Salt is an incredibly important uh, ingredient. Essential in the ancient world. In fact, in the ancient world, it it was effectively, as many of you probably know, it was effectively the refrigerator of the day. It was the preserver. It was something which kept things. It was added to in a way which preserved meats and fish. So many of you will have seen uh, salted meats and salted fish. They're kept and they're preserved by adding the salt. The salt becomes an addition which impacts on what it is brought to. Now, we use salt all over the place today, don't we? We use salt in our cooking. It adds to it, flavors. It does all of those good things. And Jesus says, essentially he's saying, this. You are to be additives. You are to be additives which brings benefit and good and effect to those that it comes into contact with. That's how you are to be. You are to be an additive. He also says you're to be a light. A light on a hill. Now, let's remind ourselves, who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to this group of disciples and he's saying, this is what you are to be. In other words, together you are to be this. Do you see the way he describes the picture that he uses? Is a town built on a hill. A town doesn't have a single light, does it? You can imagine if you're um, driving, if you, in fact, if you drive along the M62... Over on the right-hand side, you can see, um, I think it's Huddersfield, spread out, whatever town it is, spread out. You can see all of the light. you, You almost see it as one light, don't you? Although that light is actually made up of many, many lights. And yet we describe it, a town, as one. A light on a hill is the picture that Jesus is using. In other words... He's encouraging you and me to live in a way which brings a particular kind of light and a particular kind of preserving influence into the world. And we do that in two ways. We do it together, firstly. So by being together, we create the light of a city on a hill. Uh, Many of you 
involved in, you know, projection and lighting and all of that kind of thing. You probably know now that um, the way of describing brightness is measured in lumens. Relatively knew that. It used to be candle power. Candle power used to be the way that would used to describe how bright something was. They actually mean slightly different things, but we won't go into that. Candle power is what, how bright it would be if you had in one place a million candles. So a million candle power is the brightness of a million candles altogether. One candle can never create the brightness of a million candles, can it? It's just, it's just so bright. The Christian faith, and I want to really nail this in our thinking, the beginning of this series that we're looking at. The Christian faith is not designed to be lived independently. It's not shaped. Jesus never intended for us to think of Christianity as an individualized activity, as though we do that just by ourselves. That is why it is essential to make sure that we are knit into relationships, why, why we are part of a gathering of God's people expressed in a church like this. We are meant to be together. We are not designed to be alone. We are not designed in that way. There's a great picture of, of a fireplace, coals on a fireplace, the way it used to be. And a coal burning away with all of the other coals keeps on burning. But you know, one coal falls out of the fireplace, what happens? It dims and it goes out and it stops burning, doesn't it? We are designed to be supported, encouraged, knit together so that we do two things. Firstly, we corporately, we in gathering, shine a light in this world together. That means that the light that you shine particularly is perhaps a light that I am ineffective in shining personally. Your light might be of more effective in certain areas than the light that I shine, but together we shine a light. <laughs> you see that? It is essential if we are walking the walk of life to realize that we walk it together. We don't walk as individuals. Having said that, a city on a hill does not shine with one light, does it? It shines with many, many lights coming together. In other words, it is not either or, it is both. We shine together and we shine individually. Jesus says to you and to me, we are to be the kind of people that in, in our gathering, in the way that we live corporately, in the way that we behave corporately, we are to be a good, helpful, uh, shaping, positive influence, to be a light. We can, we're going to come in, on in, in a minute to think about what kind of light that is. We're to be together, but at the same time, in a darkened room where there are just two people, a single candle is of huge benefit, isn't it? A single light 
is of huge benefit in a dungeon. And Jesus, I think, in this metaphor that he is using, is encouraging us to think this. Don't rely on one or the other. Don't see our focus as being one or the other. See it as both. Look at the opportunities for us to shine together. But don't forget the opportunities to shine as an individual in that one situation, in that one context, where that little word, where that kind of shape of thinking, where that way of approaching things, where those kind words where that kind gesture, where that compassionate, loving way of expressing towards that one individual is doing this. It's one candle shining in darkness, isn't it? And that's the picture that Jesus is encouraging us to to live. Live in a way which shines in both of those. Together, make sure that we're contributing, and at the same time, make sure that we're shining. That, That has really profound day-to-day life implications, doesn't it? How do we live our lives on a day-to-day basis? In the office, in the workplace, at home, amongst the family, in the, in the road that we live in? Is our tendency to be that good preserving light? <laughs> Is that our first direction? Or Do we kind of live a life of cynicism and negativity and hurtfulness and unfaithfulness to what Jesus calls us by the power of the Spirit to be, expressing love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, those marks of the work of the Spirit which Jesus says through his word, against these there is no law. There's no law against these things to live in this way, to be marked in the way that the work of the Spirit going in on, on in our lives is shaping. Do we actually stop and do we think, right at this moment in time, with this next word or this next statement or sentence that I'm going to use in this situation, am I being a light Am I being salt or am I being a a negative, destructive, unfaithful influence? It's, It's grassroots stuff, this. It's just grassroots. If we think that the church in the past has been shaped by power... And that's where it's lost its way, where it's become negative and uh, an, an ungodly influence. One of the things that I would say is that the church grew and was established at a grassroots level. It was ordinary people living ordinary, faithful lives, consistently living day to day. That's how it grew. That's how it developed. Now... In a world which our society today, which looks far more like that world, doesn't it give us the opportunity to say, let's, let's not worry so much about the grand campaigns, about the big influence, about all of those massive issues. Let's just live out day to day being salt and light. That's how it grew. That's how it was shaped. 
So that's the first thing that we see. Look at the way Jesus concludes it in verse 16. In the same way, what does this light do? In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. They may see your good deeds. It it is grassroots, isn't it? Jesus isn't talking about some sort of highfalutin, complex, theological argument here. He's just saying, live out in a way that shines a light to others around you. Why? So that people will say, I tell you what, you're a great guy. You're, you're a great girl. Do you know what? That's, I'm, I wish I was like you. No, no. What does Jesus say? Live like that so that your life points towards your Father in heaven, so that they might glorify your Father in heaven. Right at the very beginning of this series, one of the things that we said is that we live according to our identity. That's one of the things that we see in 1 Peter chapter 2. We understand who we are and we live in accordance with this. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying if you live according to that identity, it will point to your Father in heaven. You might notice something here. Jesus is using a revolutionary phrase to describe God to the disciples. We have got so used to it that it's just normal to us. He actually describes God, Yahweh in heaven, the great God of heaven. He describes to the disciples that God as Father so that they might glorify your Father in heaven. Do you understand who you are? If you are a follower of me, if you are a believer in me, you are a child of God. He's beginning the foundations of what we now see as the relationship between believers in Jesus and the relationship with God in heaven. You're the children. You address Him as Father. Therefore, live as though you're His children. Essentially it. It's quite simple really, isn't it? Do we walk our walk day by day in a way which says, do you know what? As, uh, as Billy Bray used to say, I'm the son of a king. That's who I am. I'm the son of a king. I'm going to live like I'm the son of a king. Live in a way which shapes. So the first he says is, Walk as salt and light. Second thing he says, verse 17 and 18, is quite staggering. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. What is Jesus' attitude towards the law of God? It is 
absolutely demanding upon us. I guess that whenever we see revolutions, and in a sense, Jesus was revolutionary, one of the things that revolutions tend to do is they tend to um, seek additional personal freedom and liberty. That's what revolutions tend to do. As if we've kind of walked the walk of Jesus for some time, we've probably been confronted with this issue. How do we deal with the demands that Jesus makes when he looks back at the Old Testament and sees the pattern of God's law? Look at what he says. He says, it is absolutely still demanding upon us. You need to still live according to that. And that is a massive issue and a massive challenge. Let me just try to summarize it in this way. Look at the way Jesus approaches it. I've not come to subvert everything that's gone before. It's essentially what he says. I've not come to turn it over. I've not come to say that it was all wrong. I've come to say that it is absolutely right. But he also says this, I have come to fulfill it. See, there's two ways in which we can consider this pattern. We can consider the pattern of of God's way of living laid out in his word, the Bible, and we can approach it in two ways. We can sit it outside of us, and when we sit it outside of us, it can become a set of laws and demands which we then measure our lives day to day and seek to fulfill that law that's out there. It's out there. And therefore, I've got to make sure that I fill all of the requirements of that law. I've got to make sure that I meet it. And that can do two things, one of two things to us. We can either become legalists who look at that and say, I'm meeting that and you must do that and you've got to do that and you've got to do that. Or we can become libertines, which say, actually, all of that law out there, once Jesus comes, I can forget all of that. (laughs) Just stop for a minute. I want you to consider the way the Old Testament most perfectly describes God's law. In the times when it is written, we can see it in a number of places. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 10. Obey the Lord your God, keep his commandments and decrees that are written in this book of the law and turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. In other words, let's take those ideas and those thoughts And let's move them into my very being. Let them become a part of me. Let them become my very way of thinking, my very attitude, my my life pattern. So that I don't see it anymore as something out there to be fulfilled. I see it as something in here which shapes 
my attitude on a day-to-day basis? What does the law say about money? You've got to give. And if we take that attitude and we put it out there and we say, that's something that I've got to do and it's the law and it's outside of me, then it's a, it's a legalistic demand that's being made out there. But when I move that and I shape that and I think that that and I, I take that idea and I put it deep down inside of my heart and I say, I, rather than saying, what does the law say about money? It says this. How does my love for God shape the way I value money? Where's my priority? Is my love for God such that I want to be shaped deep down inside so that I use my money and my time and my relationships in ways which are appropriate and good, that are helpful, that display all of those kindnesses and goodnesses that we've been talking about. When it comes inside, when it becomes a shaping influence, it becomes a law of the heart rather than a law that I tick a box. And when I live with a law written deep in my heart, I become salt and light. I become that. I become shaped by it. I become the kind of person that lives in this world, not measuring success by this world, not shaping my decisions by this world, but shaping my success, shaping my decisions, shaping the way I think about my own very being, not by the law out there, not by the ideas of this world, but by how God describes who I am, because it's written deep down in here. Do you know what? All of, the, all of the battles and all of the struggles about what to do with the Old Testament pattern of living could be transformed in our thinking if we took that simple step and said, let's move it inside, deep down here, and think about how it should change my heart, how it should change my attitude, my way of thinking. You know what? This thing, Jesus... Paid a temple tax. Jesus paid a temple tax. He did that. Because that was appropriate then. Just because he did it doesn't mean that we pay a temple tax. But it means that the pattern of being was shaped in his heart. So that he was thinking and willing his life in a way which was consistent with the pattern of being. What a difference that would make. How transforming that would be. You might be listening and thinking, you know, the problem is, I I hear that. I, I hear that the way of living is to be shaped by that law. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, that we are called to be so committed to it that unless we keep it, we don't see heaven. That's what he says. Look at the way he goes on. 
Uh, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) Jesus is speaking to his band of disciples and he's saying, look, you've got to be so committed to this that your righteousness must exceed the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were those in the day, we see it, drawn out in various ways through the, new te- through the Gospels, we see that the Pharisees were a group of uh, religious, um, absolutely committed zealots. They were absolutely committed to keeping this law in every way that they possibly could. And we see that Jesus says, you've got to be better than them. And if you're not better than them, then you won't see heaven. I look at that, and initially, my thought is this. Well, I'll tell you what, I ain't never going to see heaven. I'm never going to see heaven because I'll never be better than them in trying to keep the law. And you might alternatively say, so on one hand, it might throw you into despair because you might say, I'll never see heaven because I'll never be that good. You might also, alternatively, be thinking about this idea of the Christian faith, and you might say, I don't want it. I'm not interested in it, because I know all sorts of people who've claimed to be Christians, and the way that they've lived is not even close to being good enough to those claims. They've lived in ways which are despicable. They've, they've, they've let me down. They've hurt me. They've laid, lived in ways which just aren't like that. So you might have two reactions depending on where we are. And yet Jesus is still saying this, that unless your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees, then you will never see the kingdom of heaven. What do we do with that? How do we respond to that which Jesus is saying. If we understand Jesus through the New Testament, we must understand this. He sets a series of stepping stones in his life. He creates a journey for us. He takes us on a... We can't just take... We will mess up in our understanding of Jesus, in our understanding of the Bible, if we drag out little sections and not join it to the rest. We must join it to the rest. We must see how Jesus is preparing us for this. He's saying this. The only ones who can see heaven are those who are perfectly righteous. You've got to be that good. And that idea knocks both of our concerns. For those of us who feel 
as though I'll never be as good as the Pharisees. I'll never exceed that righteousness. And yet Jesus says, I must. This is one of the most encouraging little sections. Because it causes us, it should make us realize that I'll never be that good. It should make us think that. I can't be that good. I can't be that righteous. I'm helpless then, aren't I? And if we stick with Jesus, and if we stick with the way that he opens up who he is, he will turn to us and he will say, you're absolutely right. You will never be that righteous. You will never exceed the righteousness that is demanded. But, but, I will. I will be the one who will exceed all of the demands of the law. Because that's what he said. Do you remember when he said earlier, I I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. Jesus says, all of those demands that you can't keep, that the history of the Old Testament keeps on telling us we can't keep them, Jesus says, I'll keep them. I'll keep them. Every single one of them. I will meet the demand. I will live a life which is righteous. I will live a life which is perfect. I'll meet that. I'll be good enough. And therefore, when you realize that you're not good enough, stop trusting in yourself and trust in me. That's what he's saying. The demands of the law are so onerous, so demanding, that you'll never keep it. You've got to far exceed the righteousness that you have ever seen in any of the combined efforts of all of those who've sought to be perfect. But I have. So if we are sat thinking, I'll never see heaven based on my righteousness... You're absolutely right. We'll never see heaven based on our righteousness. But based on the righteousness of Jesus, based on what He has achieved, based on the fact that ultimately He explains to us that I will stand in your place and bear your unrighteousness as you are clothed in my righteousness, we can say, I will succeed. In Him, because of Him, I will be that righteous. I will be that good. Not because I'm that good, but because He is. Let me also encourage you, if you're sat here thinking, these Christians who have failed so many times and let me down, I'll say, I know. Because we're a messed up bunch. We're an unfaithful messed up bunch. But if you, as long as you keep looking at us as what is perfect and what is righteous and what is the pattern of living a life before God, we will let you down. We will let you down. But when you look at Jesus, when you look at the pattern that He lived, when you look that he lived the life which was righteous, which was perfect, which was good, when you take your eyes off, off our failures and look at his success 
and realize that we don't trust. We must never trust. And whenever we give the impression that we're trusting in our righteousness, that is just an example of the fact that we are unrighteous bunch. (laughs) But when you look at his righteousness, you will realize that in him there is something groundbreaking, something so different to anything that is marked with religion. This is marked with goodness and righteousness and faithfulness. Look at him. So in other words, our light should shine in a way which shines up at him. And if you're thinking about this idea of Christian faith, don't look at the ones who are trying falteringly to shine the light. Look at where we're pointing.